and take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, as a surprise to absolutely no one, I talked too long about baptism, so I'm going to read a bit quickly. Isaiah chapter 1. This is God's Word for you today. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though uh, you may make, sorry, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She is she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender in his work, a spark. Both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Father, this is a hard passage, certainly bigger than we are. And so we pray, O Lord, that your spirit, that he would be pleased to give life and light in our hearts even now. For Christ's sake, amen. Begin with a challenge. Don't say it out loud. But see if you can guess the book from the first sentence in the book. I'll I'll start with an easy one. This is one that I think many of the adults might get. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. I'll stop there. You know this one? You get it? Tale of two cities, best of times, worst of time, the two different cities are pretty easy. All right, kiddos, here's one that you might be able to guess, maybe. All children except one grow up. All children except one grow up. Do you get that one, any of you kiddos? Give you a hint, J.M. Barry's masterpiece is Peter Pan. All children grow up except for one, Peter Pan. My favorite C.S. Lewis one here, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. What a great line, right? What a great line. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. All, all of these, this is kind of, kind of categorically, represent a masterful introduction to a book because in just a brief snapshot, it kind of lays out everywhere that you're going. 
Peter Pan, all kids grow up. That's the challenge. They grow up and in that world become, in some sense, probably bad guys, except for one, Peter. He doesn't. Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace Clarence Scrub, ugly name for a boy with an ugly heart. And you get to watch throughout the story his ugly heart um, plays out and displays itself and displays itself until um, in the story the Lord changes it. It introduces the entire theme of the book in just one brief snapshot. And though it might not have felt brief at the time, (laughs) that's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 1. In fact, interestingly, it's not even kind of chronologically in order in the book. Chronologically, the book of Isaiah starts roughly in chapter 6. But what's happening is Isaiah, masterfully in his literary construction, has written five chapters at the beginning to introduce us to everything that's going to follow. Those five chapters at the beginning parallel uh, some of the chapters at the very end with chapter one and the very last chapter mimicking each other, though, on opposite ways. It introduces the material it, in theory, should generate some sort of kind of intrigue, and sets the stage for what's to come. The problem is, is if you kind of paid attention to the reading at all, you're probably sitting there going, Michael, why are you preaching through Isaiah? That sounds dreadful. I mean, that chapter, most of it was not good news. And last I checked, if I look up there, Isaiah's not a, it's not a small book. Yeah, that, that's actually right. Yeah, you got it. You summed it up fairly accurately for an introductory sermon. We have a book that's uh, laying out for us some tremendous challenges and difficulties for the people of God. In fact, actually, what we're going to look at just briefly in chapter one is that God lays out kind of two dangers, one warning, and then one hope. Two dangers, one warning one hope. He starts out with, like I said, probably one of the the more jarring introductions to a lengthy work. It introduces who the author is. It's God ultimately, but he's writing through Isaiah, a vision that God gives to Isaiah. Isaiah has a lengthy ministry. It's roughly in the 700 um, BC, 740-ish and to later. You have multiple kings that he's ministering through, and he's in the southern kingdom dealing in Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 1 would be an optimistic verse as God speaking, and God speaking is a good thing. We need to hear from God. It's hopeful to hear from God. It's good to hear from God until verse 2 where we begin to find out what we're hearing from God. And it's hard. Verses 1 through 9 introduce the first theme of what's going on with the people of God and that they have adopted a thoughtless rebellion. I think probably in some sense there's kind of two different ways that rebellion kind of works itself out. The caricature that I think most of us would think of when we think of somebody that's being rebellious, it's that loud kind of rebellion, right? It's the the proclaiming from the rooftops, I hate God. It's the angry, it's the one that we see on social media anytime you open any platform, which you probably shouldn't, it's better for you. 
It's the kind of person that rejects him and rejects everything about God. It's the new atheism you hear from Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and such. It's angry. We tend to think of that as rebellion. And certainly that is a true type of rebellion, but I I think it's probably safe to say that's late-stage rebellion. That's the overt and obvious rebellion, but that kind of rebellion usually only shows up after something else has been growing for a long time. A quiet, hidden, devious, and pernicious rebellion, uh, internal, covert rebellion. Whereas the loud kind is often quite intentional, it's quite angry, it's quite committed to saying, I hate God, I don't believe God, I'm mad at God. Well, how can you be mad at someone you don't believe exists? But okay. Interestingly, that's not where God starts. Where God starts is much more with His people wrestling through the quiet, internal rebellion the thoughtless rebellion, a rebellion that is um, manifested by a love of self and a forgetfulness of God. Look at how he describes it. He begins to use word pictures to help us understand. The Lord describes this, I've raised children. I've brought them up. I've parented them. But what have these children done? They've rebelled against me. Even an ox, even a donkey, they know who their master is. They know who their owner is. They know who they belong to, but my people, they've forgotten. Israel doesn't know they belong to me anymore. That's the end of verse 3. It's like my people don't understand us. It's like they've forgotten A rebellion that's at at its core in some fashion, now it's going to be overt later, but at this point, being described and explained much more is almost like a forgetfulness. A forgetfulness that God is in charge, a forgetfulness of God's Word that He gives you His commands to obey, a forgetfulness that He owns you and you belong to Him because He made you. You're His creature. You did not make yourself And as a result, this this forgetfulness of God and who He is and what He's doing for us, it might seem like, well, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not really that important. Well, except for God, it is. Verse 4, ah, sinful nation. Now that term, interestingly, there is the, na- is the technical term for a Gentile nation, a, a pagan, unbelieving nation. He's saying, look, my people have so forgotten who I am. They have so forgotten my ways. They have so forgotten my law. They have so forgotten my love that they live as those who are unbelievers. They walk as those who look like unbelievers. They have hearts that have affections that look like those of unbelievers. In fact, they behave like a people laden with iniquity. They behave like the the children of evildoers instead of the children of God. And it even gets to the end of verse 4 where it's described almost like a divorce. The two parties are utterly estranged. The people of God are sick. Their relationship with their God is 
has been broken. And again, interestingly, at this point in, in, in history, it's, we know it's not like Israel or uh, Jerusalem and Judah at this point are saying they hate God. This is not one of those kind of moments in history where they're saying, hey, we're the Canaanites. Yay, we're the bad guys. This is describing a people who would still call themselves the Jews, who would still say they belong to the living and true God, but in no way reflect that. Their thoughtless, quiet rebellion has not yet manifested as overt, comedic, ridiculous rebellion, but it's growing. It's increasing. It's being nourished and flourishing. Maybe think of this maybe from kind of the perspective of marriage counseling. At some point, I've done enough marriage counseling now, I have people that will make it into my office and will be like, I hate my spouse. Wow. All right. Let's talk about that. Now, interestingly, is that a problem that started last week? It's funny. People will still try to pretend that. It was last week, last month. No, friend, it wasn't. Because that level of, of kind of hatred, that level of commitment to the estrangement of the relationship, just pure hate, it takes time to grow in some fashion, usually. In fact, actually, normally, if you begin to kind of inquire, you can find that, okay, you may hate your spouse now, but for the previous months or years or decades, you've cultivated a heart that's ignored your spouse You've cultivated a heart that thinks of yourself. You're thinking of your own needs. You're thinking of your own wants. You're thinking of your own desires instead of theirs. You've been cultivating kind of having your needs met instead of cultivating a habit of caring for their affections and needs and desires. In fact, what's been happening is you've been letting the me monster grow inside you until the me monster has eaten even the love of spouse. That used to be there. That's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 for Israel. The Lord's confronting them and saying, look, you've, you've allowed the me monster to rule in your heart. And the me monster is this voracious, always hungry, always consuming, always destroying entity that lives and grows and kills everything. And because Israel has allowed that to grow, it's destroying their relationship with God. There are some parts of Scripture where you read it and you're like, whew, man, that's hard to apply. I can't figure out exactly what that means for me today and how I should live my life differently. You get to some of the genealogies and places and you're like, I'm not really sure how this impacts my daily living. This is not one of those passages. (laughs) This is not one of those warnings where I'm like, "Mm, I wonder how I should apply this one. Friends, this is like an easy one. See, the reality of the matter is that people don't ultimately change uh, in the sense of all humans are the same. Certainly the Lord does change us from death into life, but I mean human experience is common. 
And here you have a portion of the people of God that are wrestling with the me monster that has destroyed their hearts and actually pushed them into downright rebellion. And if we're going to be honest, that should scare the daylights out of us. It should absolutely terrify us because who are we to think that we would be immune of the me monster ourselves? Who are we to think that we would be immune from a heart that grows cold toward God? Who are we to think that we would be immune from forgetting His ways or forgetting His promises or disbelieving? You know, and again, it's kind of easy. This is one of those things that as we read, particularly the Old Testament, sometimes their failures are, are so big and so kind of spectacular and catastrophic, it's, it's easy for us to say, well, I would never have that happen. I mean, I'm not going to worship a golden cow. Who would do that? That's crazy. But it's because we forget how sin works, how it's corrupting destroying, infecting. The me monster is always hungry. Danger 1, verses 1 through 9, Isaiah lays out that Israel has really, perhaps unintentionally, but even sometimes accidentally, fallen into outright rebellion because they have forgotten their God. The second thing, verses 10 through 11, the second, I mean, sorry, 10 through 20, the second danger is intriguing how it fits with the first. The first is that God is warning them of rebellion, but the second thing that goes hand in hand with it is that they are actually being warned about unloving ritualism, formalism. That's what makes this such an interesting time in Israel's history. It's not like they just outright hate God. It's not that they've stopped working at doing the things that He's commanded them to do. It's not like they don't have worship in the morning. It's not like they're not celebrating the festivals that He's told them to celebrate. It's not like they're not doing the incense the way that He's told them. It's not that they've stopped doing Christian things. It's that they've stopped the heart of love that is supposed to go behind it. Right? Verse 10, look at it. Go, hear, hear the word of the Lord. Rulers of Sodom, you know, that, never a good thing when you're being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not a comparison that's ever positive. But look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? So what's the value in the sacrifices that you are performing, Israel? What's the value of your religious activity? Second half of 11. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. The fat of well-fed beefs. I don't delight in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Again, not a good thing when God is saying, I don't delight in your sacrifices. I'm tired of them. You're doing all the things that a Christian's supposed to do. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of you acting this way. It's not pleasing to him anymore. In fact, he even, verse 14 says, he hates it. That's shocking. 
Look at what verse 14 says. Your new moons, this was a commanded special feast that they were supposed to have uh, on the monthly cycle um, uh, based on the calendar. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, those are your regularly scheduled uh, feasts of worship. My soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. This is the equivalent of God saying, look, you do Sunday morning worship so badly, it's a burden to me. I'm weary of being there. Now, interestingly, some of you told God that this morning. But it hits a little differently when he says it, doesn't it? But that's, in essence, the kind of summary of what he's responding to. He's like, look, your, your hearts are so absent. You're just going through the motions. And I'm tired of it. I hate it. Verse 15, even when you pray, I don't listen. That's crazy, isn't it? That God himself hates ritualism with no heart. I mean, certainly there is an element of you fake it till you make it. You do the right thing until your heart catches up, and I'm all on board for that. But he's going after that kind of person who says they're a Christian, who sometimes does the things that may look Christian, but really just isn't interested in God at all. Now, I think for probably many of us in the room, if you've grown up in the church, um, you know, if you've been in the church since you were a little one, like we saw this morning, many of us, our story of when we really began to grow in grace and grow in God is when we had a faithful older member of the church sit down and have this exact conversation with us. You say you're a Christian. You belong to the church. You're a member here. And if you're going to say that, you have to act it. You, you can't pretend This isn't some sort of kind of Hollywood play where we're all actors that are acting like Christians. No, we are called to be the real thing. Those that have hearts that are devoted to God, those that have hands that are devoted to God, those that have mouths that are devoted to God, those that have minds that are devoted to God. And certainly we will fail, but we repent and we love Him for His mercy. We love Him for His grace. Children, I would speak to you particularly. Youth group, children's ministry, there is a particular danger for you growing up in the church to think that just because I've been in the building, that's good enough. Just because I've been in the proximity of worship, just because I've been in the proximity of God, that's enough that I too can make it to heaven, but that's not the answer Salvation isn't by proximity, it's by Christ and Christ alone. It's about the redeeming work of Jesus not being inside a building, inside four walls. The danger for you, children, youth in the church, adults in the church, is that we cultivate a a habit and a heart that loves the external realities of Christianity but doesn't love the internal realities 
of Christianity. This is that accusation that sometimes the unbeliever makes towards Christians to say, well, you're all hypocrites. And there's an element of, yeah, I mean, we all sin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an element of, yeah, I'm not perfect this side of glory. Once I die, I will be. I'm not there yet. Not dead yet. But I think more as that actual accusation is getting at, no, there is this category, this danger that Christians would just go through the motions with a heart that doesn't care. And you can see the danger of how this would kind of mesh with that first warning, wouldn't you? You have a person who is quietly in their heart rebelling against God, and while they quietly in their heart rebel against God, any love for Him vanishes, any hope in Him vanishes, any trust in His promise vanishes, and so you then have all of the externals that become meaningless so that you're going through the motions with no desire at all. Again, maybe think of an illustration. Perhaps it would be like a wedding. Bride and groom are getting ready to get married. They've made all of the preparations, you know, the months and months and months of preparation it takes to get all of the parts and pieces ready for the wedding. And then, you know, right before the wedding ceremony is supposed to take place, you know, the pastor sits down with one of them, you know, bride or groom, whatever, and is just like, are you excited? And they're like, not really. And the pastor's like, why? Why? I don't love them. I'm just doing this because I have to. Time out. That's a problem. Like, let's, let's answer that question before the wedding. Why, why are you just going through the motions? Well, I don't love them. There's no heart behind it. I think most of us would probably panic if you were in the moment. If, if you're the person having that conversation, right? Ooh, stop. We've got to figure this out. The danger of a heart that doesn't love the Lord. Now, and there's a warning that kind of is attached to both of these, right? The, the dangers, the sins that are presented of this kind of thoughtless, quiet rebellion and an unloving ritualism just going through the motions, those combine to a heart that's dead toward God. The warning that's attached to it is in verses 21 through 26, kind of quickly covering this because of my misuse of time earlier. It's this, that if you are God's child, really and truly God's child, He loves you so much, He cares for you so much, that He will not leave you in that condition. The Lord loves you so much, He's not going to let you ruin your life forever. He'll help you do it so that it has a happier ending. Verse 24, therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. So here, the, the, the God of all glory, the God of all justice, the God of all power, the God of all might will turn his hand against his people. Now, will it be to destroy them, to wipe them off the face of the planet, you know, to zap them? Done that motion before? No. What does he tell him he's, he's going to do? He'll turn my hand against you so that I can get rid of all the dross, get rid of all the trash, burn away all the bad parts. 
I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all of your alloys. So two different ways, two different chemical processes that you could talk about here. Uh, one is uh, like you take a, a metal and you heat it uh, till it turns into a liquid and you just scrape all the trash off the top. Uh, the other one here would be using a chemical process to burn away all of the impurities. Just gonna go out on a limb and say neither of those feel very comfortable. One to be burnt so badly that everything turns liquid and the trash can just be scraped away. The other is a chemical caustic burn that burns from the inside out until all the bad parts are removed. The Lord loves His people so much. He cares for us so much that He's not going to leave us forever. Certainly not leave us in our sins, certainly not leave us in our own ways, but instead will discipline us. Now, that's if we're His people. If, if you don't know the Lord and if you're not His child, and something very different actually, for that person is just destruction. For that person, it's not that He's there to help them yet, it's that He is actively destroying them. The Lord disciplines those that He loves. Now, I, I'll be honest, I'll be completely transparent in our tradition, Christian tradition, the Reformed tradition, I think we do probably a really good job about talking about the forgiveness of sins part. I think we probably do a fairly good job of saying like, hey, if you want to have your sins forgiven, please come to Christ. I, I, I tell you, every time I serve communion, it's my favorite conversation to have. You want to know Jesus, I know the way to do that. In fact, a substantial portion of the people in this room know how to do that and can tell you about that. But perhaps one of the things that we don't talk about quite enough is that sin is so catastrophically bad that the Lord Himself refuses to ignore it. He may be patient through it. He may be very, very patient through it. But He never ignores it. And I know there's a temptation for us as Christians to be able to say, well, I've been forgiven by Jesus, everything's fine. All my sins on the cross, and that is true. But there's also an element to it that the Lord loves you so much that He will continue to discipline you. He will continue to burn away the impurities. He will continue to burn away the dross to make us into the image of Christ. I think probably appropriately that's part of the challenge. We as a church are entering into a new year. God's doing things in this church. I don't know what all of them are. I know many of them are very, very good things. You're going to hear of His generosity to us over the next several weeks as we talk about what's going on in the church. You're getting to already hear His generosity to us. We're having to change our church calendars. He's provided us more bodies than we have chairs for some of our activities. We're having to figure out how to be the people of God together in different ways. It's wonderful. But in the midst of all of those blessings, the kind of niggling doubts in the back of my brain, the pastor part of my heart is saying, yes, but... I know the danger that we get so excited about the gifts that we begin to cultivate love of self, a forgetfulness of the love of Christ, 
start going through the motions until it deteriorates to thoughtless rebellion. That's my actual kind of number one concern for the church, honestly. Going forward, we have so many gifts that God has given, so many blessings that are happening, so many wonderful things and tremendous and glorious stories. My biggest concern pastorally is that we might lose our first love, that our hearts might grow cold. And I worry for that for you. And honestly, the reason why I worry that for you is because I know my own heart and I worry that for me. <laughs> but it's so easy to be occupied with the busy things that we forget the best things. The story obviously doesn't end there. I mean, that's a dreadful sermon and a dreadful passage if we just end kind of with that. Hey, don't go ruin your life. Your pastor's worried about you. Have a good one. Enjoy your Sunday lunch. The lesser but more important theme is also introduced here. It's hidden. And in fact, actually, if you were to look at the entire structure of the book of Isaiah, you get roughly 40 chapters of what we've preached this morning. At that point, our membership just dropped in half. (laughs) No, I'm I'm teasing. You, you, you You get 40 chapters of hard. But all of the difficulty is for a purpose. It's not squandered pain. It's the um, section we read from Paul earlier. It's, it's godly grief. It's grief intended for a reason. So that we would understand verses 27 through 31, verses 18 and 19 and 20, that God is in the business of being faithful to His people. You see, that's the kind of overarching, most important, bright and shining theme of the book of Isaiah is that while God's people are an absolute dumpster fire, they are a mess, that God loves them and He's not going to leave them and He's not going to forsake them and He's not going to turn away from them, but He's going to take care of them. Now, it'll be through tears. It's going to be through hurt and heartache. He's, uh, they're going to be taken care of as their actual nation is invaded 140 years after this is 156 years after this is written, roughly. But Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her repent by righteousness. They, they will be redeemed. They will be taken care of. Verse 18, the one that we probably know and love. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The Lord is the one who will do this. Right? The danger is that you walk out from the first three quarters of the sermon and go, well, man, he preached a good kind of ooh, try harder sermon. I'm going to go into the new year and I'm going to try harder. I've started my Bible reading plan and I'm still in Genesis where I'm still having fun. I got half of Exodus and I'm still going to have fun. And then I'm out. Never made it past Leviticus, funny enough. And instead what happens, we, just, we lose that love. You see, the beautiful thing is the promise and the overarching theme of the book, the the bright and shining kind of silver thread that's woven through the garment is that the Lord loves His people and He's going to take care of us. And we find out later in church history this book is called the fifth gospel because in the Old Testament it's the one that probably the most clearly 
and the most elegantly and the most beautifully explains that Jesus is the way that God fixes the world. And He is the Redeemer of God's people and the restorer of all that is broken. Our challenge as we go forward as a congregation, membership here, visitors if you're with us, people of God, our challenge is to be just that, people of God, hearts devoted to living and loving the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for really hard passages. <laughs> we thank you for the humility that they teach us. We thank you that not all passages are equally difficult and that some are much more um, easy to access. And we thank you that your promises are yes and amen in Jesus and that I, we can never outrun his love. We do ask that you would forgive us for thinking of sin lightly and thinking of Christ as lowly. It's in his name that we pray, amen.